Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Susan Davis. And Susan G. Davis... <laughs> okay. ...has been a friend of mine, albeit always long distance, for maybe 25 years. And I think maybe Rick Maxwell put us in touch first. Maybe, yeah. That's possibly how we we connected. But I've not seen you for a long time, and it's great to be in touch. I wonder if we could start by your bringing me up to date, in a sense, and very much up to date as in right now. What's mattering to you? What's interesting you, stupefying you, preoccupying you, exciting you? Yeah. Well, um, just like everybody else, you know, it's the we're in the second week of February and the main thing on my mind is Gaza. And I'm uh, suffering a lot and, you know, reading a lot um, and in trying to um, make sense of what's going on. I've been reading I've, I've been reading like probably everybody is uh, Rashid Khalidi and going back and looking at things that I didn't understand in Edward Said when I read Edward Said. Um, but um, as, a, as a way of um, entering into this, I, uh, you know, in addition to reading too much news and being on um, social media too much about it, um, I, I discovered uh, a number of really wonderful books. And I, I don't know how I discovered this book, but there's an author named Adina Hoffman. She uh, uh, it divides her time, or she used to divide her time between um, Jerusalem and New Haven. And she's married to a translator and poet named Peter Cole. And they've written some wonderful, wonderful books um, about uh, Palestinian culture, Arab poetry. Peter, I think, mostly translates medieval Arabic poetry. She has a book called My Happiness Bears No Relation to Happiness. And it's um, the first full biography of a Palestinian poet that's been written. Uh, it's a biography of a poet named uh, Taha Muhammad Ali, who was completely self-educated. Um, he was a young boy in 1948. Um, from 1948 on, when he was, he was probably about nine in 1948, he supported his family by selling candy bars and sodas. Uh, but he always knew that he loved poetry and literature. And why did he know that this was so important to him? Because he had grown up listening to all the men in his village, uh, gathering in his father's guest house. His father was a headman of the village. Um, and they told stories, myths, talked politics, read poetry, read history, read newspapers to each other all night, every night. And when someone, I guess Adina Hoffman asked Taha how, what, what he wanted to be when he grew up and how he knew what he wanted, he said, I wanted to have my father's voice, which I thought was kind of an amazing thing to say. 
So um, just to compress the story, this man um, became a, you know, a small shopkeeper in Nazareth. Uh, the family, family was displaced. Their village was bombed. They were displaced to Lebanon. And then they infiltrated, um, in Israeli terms, illegally back in uh, to what, what had become Israel. <clears throat> so they were inside, I think, what is called the 48. And um, he began to live and just keep a small shop. I mean, literally send, selling candy bars and cigarettes in, in a souvenir area near a famous church in Nazareth. Later, he sold souvenirs as well. And um, of course, being the man of words that he was and wanted to be, he immediately turned this tiny souvenir shop into a literary salon for the working class literary people of mm -hmm. Palestine, almost entirely men, I think entirely men. And um, he was um, a forerunner of uh, Mahmoud Darwish. So he was of an earlier generation. Um, but somehow because of his role in having this souvenir shop, he knew everybody. Uh, anyway, this is a wonderful book because you learn about the history of Jerusalem, the history of Nazareth, the history of Palestine and what Palestinian village life was like before 1948. Um, as 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 side subjects to the development of this young man's poetic ability, he taught himself to read. He taught himself classical Arabic, and he saved. You know, very he's supporting a very large family, but he somehow managed to save up enough money to buy a couple of probably acres of land, and. Um, when he had this money, he decided that it would be much more important to have essentially the OED of medieval Arabic. So he bought that instead. This is the kind of person he was. Right, right, so right. I that's that's what's been absorbing me. And so I've been reading a biography. I've been reading a book of his poetry. His books in English by him are not easy to come by. And he didn't publish a ton but there is an available book called So What? That is, it's not by Miles Davis. It's by, <laughs> <laughs> but it has a, a similar wrenching effect. And um, it's, uh, it's both short stories and poetry. Uh, and his poetry, I think you'd have to, it's very simple to say this, but it's very clear on the surface that it's a poetry of loss and exile. Um, in complex ways, um, and also very beautiful poetry. So I've been reading that. I've been reading Rashid Khalidi. I've been reading a very interesting book uh, that, again, has lots and lots of echoes with my past work and stuff that I've done <laughs> in my scholarly career called The Object of Memory by an anthropologist called Susan Slimovitz, and she teaches at UCLA. She teaches in uh, uh, anthropology, Arabic studies, and human rights. And this book is about the way Palestinians and Israelis construct the history of a village 
that is now Israeli, but the Palestinians <laughs> who used to live there live right up the hill from it. Or this is, the book was written in the 90s, so this may not be the case now, um, but uh, it's not far from Haifa. So um, I'm sounding as if I know more the geography better than I do. So uh, one of the things that happens in this village that um, people are driven out of um, in 1948, um, in 1953, the village is reclaimed by a collective of artists led by a Swiss uh, practitioner of Dada, and they turn it into an artist's colony, sort of revise, sort of romanticize, sort of reconstruct the architecture. They make it a tourist attraction. They celebrate the beautiful Palestinian stonework and arts and crafts. Um, and I'm in the middle of the book, <laughs> waiting to see what happens next. Beautiful. So is this the one, is this on your side of the bed? Is it one of those, is it a physical book or are you all digital now, Prof Davis? Oh no, Prof Davis is all analog as much as possible. So it's on the side of the bed next to the light with a couple of other books. With, yeah, I'm a kind of a piler. So You're a piler, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. that kind of it, thing. It's at the top now, of the pile. A couple of notes, because perhaps the plurality of listeners are in the U.S., but the majority is not. UCLA is University of California, Los Angeles. UCSD is University of California, San Diego. Both right. Susan, I taught in the UC system. She was in San Diego. And for all its problems, it is a great tribute to public higher education in the United States. Yeah, it really is. And it's Especially best. when public higher education is taking it on the chin. So hard in so many places. Absolutely. Now, yeah. an, an expression you used a moment ago really struck me viscerally, wrenching moment. Uh -huh. And you referenced your namesake, Miles. <laughs> right. Could you tell us what for you is a wrenching moment? In, it could be re Miles Davis. Oh, um. Gosh, Toby, what a wonderful question. A, a, a wrenching moment is a moment, I think, when you, as a reader, I mean, and I was speaking as a reader, um, you, you come smack up against something that hits you so hard. You realize this person who I'm reading about has so few choices but an, in, an indomitable, angry spirit. So this story, So What?, is about a little boy who has no shoes. Mm. And he bothers and bothers his parents for shoes. There's no money for shoes. But one day, the shoe salesman comes to his village and lays out all the leather, the leather shoes and... By the time the little boy has scrounged up enough money from all the neighbors that he's begging coins from to go buy himself a pair of shoes, um, there the the salesman has packed up and left, yeah. and there are only two shoes left, and they're two right shoes, and he buy he buys them anyway, and yeah. painfully wears them home because they're not comfortable, 
And I think an older relative, perhaps his father yells at him and says, what on earth? Why did you do this? What did you do? You, you spent all these coins on two right shoes. You're not even going to be able to wear them. And the little kid just starts screaming, so what? So what? Beautiful, beautiful. Well, you know what I thought of when you were speaking, both Miles Davis with his horn and also James Brown's music and the way in which for all the issues with their masculinity that one might raise, there is a, a pain and a sexuality, a joy in that, ooh, sound. So what? Yeah. Right? That yeah. is like so what? That the screaming yeah. of a child, uh, not that I want to sexualize that, but there's a passion. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the child screaming back, there's a passion. There's a I passion, think. right? Yeah, I think that's where Taha was in that. In yeah. I mean, he's a very gentle man, and his poetry seems very gentle, but this story just screams. Well, we all have it in us. <laughs> now, right, well, right, we do. Now, I want you to help me understand something. Until I moved to the U.S. in the nineties, I thought folklore was a thing that uh -huh. people knew about. But somehow or other, I didn't realize they were folklorists. <laughs> well, well, it's a, it's a long story. So you you um, you grew up in England. Mostly. I grew up in various places, but uh, there and in Australia, and a bit in India and the U.S., but mostly Australia and the U.K. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the, Australia might give you a different picture, but the U.K. You would you would be forgiven if you thought folklorists were people who dressed in tweeds and did Morris dancing once a year. And that is what I thought until I yeah. met Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet. Right. And, well, that must have shaken you up. <laughs> and, and then you. And and I also went on this bizarre Ford Foundation trip to Ford <laughs> to evaluate the work of folklorists who were. Yeah, recording the stories of minorities. Uh -oh. <laughs> and Where was that was a, a dialogue of the deaf. Uh, I mean, it's bad to use. I mean, I'm partially deaf, so I feel as though I can stereotype disabled people in one way. But I was deaf to them, and they were sure as heck deaf to me. So yeah. the only ones I ever had any encounter with of any significance were you and Barbara. Well, Barbara is wonderful, and she was one of my teachers. Oh, um, was she? Okay. And she still she still is one of my teachers. Okay, all right. She's yeah. so far ahead of everybody that you know <laughs> <laughs> we struggle to to keep up with her intellectually. Um, uh, yeah. She, um, no, it, it's quite quite different in the U.S. I mean, there were song catcher type. Folklorists, you know, people who were inspired by Cecil Sharp, who was English and founded the English Folk Song and Dance Society in London, I think in London, and would go around with little notebooks and try to find songs or stories that had connections to, honestly, I'm serious, Elizabethan or Tudor and Elizabethan oh. oral traditions from England or Scotland. Um, and it's a much, it's a very interesting story. It's a much longer story that I could tell. But in fact, this, this changed quite a bit in the 1960s and 1970s 
there began to be people who were interested in putting together interdisciplinary departments to study culture. And some of these people called themselves folklorists. And there were a bunch of other kinds of people mixed in. So, but there were folklore departments. Most of them have been disbanded in the age of austerity. Um, I, I studied at Penn where the people in my department were sociolinguists, English professors, anthropologists, record producers, musicians, and architects. So go figure. But they, and, and we had, in my department, in the department I was in, we had close ties also to sociologists, people like um, Goffman and I mean, we would, you know, you would wait around nervously to see if Irving Goffman would let you into his class. Um, communication scholars like Ray Birdwhistle and William LeBove, Del Himes. So it was wildly interdisciplinary, but the subject of focus was something that we called folklore, which I would just loosely define as a mode of communication that's in the key of tradition. It's an informal, intimate way of communicating um, that can be very localized. It can also be very widespread. Some people would even say global. Um, and it's partly linguistic, but it's not only linguistic. I thought I was gonna study traditional building. I thought I was gonna study master stonemasons and people who made buildings out of the materials at hand that were very environmentally appropriate to the local, wherever they lived. And then I found out that I was terrible at architectural drawing. And no one, I mean, I was a failure at it, a real failure at it. And I just was not, I was not about elevations. I was anyway. Um, no one suggested that I go to the architecture school and just take a course in how to do architectural drawing. That would have been too easy. So I just changed what I was doing. I remember in high school, in the early 1970s, if you were doing what was called technical drawing, you had to be able to draw things without rulers or any sort of physical aid other than a bloody pencil because this was thought of as artisanal in one sense, but also natural as an ability. That's bizarre. Yes, well, quite. Uh, the sort of education that I had most of my life yeah. was I, punitive I mean, I, rather than pedagogic, let's say. Yeah. The high school I went to, mechanical drawing was for boys. That's, I mean, you, that's my generation. Yeah. Yeah, well, we had a choice... On one strand, we could do farm mechanics or French. <laughs> and the other strand, Latin, German, or technical drawing. I can see the German going with technical drawing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're renowned for your publishing in areas that clearly include folklore, and you've published in folklore journals and so on. And you've published about a famous folklorist, but right. you've also done things that people would associate with cultural studies, with communication studies, with anthropology, with cultural history. Yeah. And I wondered if we could start 
backwards in a way with your more recent book about one of the founding people of folklore in the United States. And you mentioned music earlier. And of course, as an outsider who knows nothing, it seems to me as though the Library of Congress and Library of Congress music has been an important place for folklore work in the United yes. States. Yes, that's 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 absolutely true. I mean I would I would push it further back than that. Yeah. Um now but I just I just want to say that that one of uh one of my teachers who is still my teacher <clears throat> is um uh the jazz scholar John Swed. So Oh wonderful. Yeah. So he's he's really wonderful. And one of his books, I mean he's got an insane new book out that I haven't finished reading yet, but one of his one of his books is a biography of Alan Lomax. And yeah. the subtitle is The Man Who Recorded the World. And Beautiful. Beautiful. Lomax and his father laid the John Lomax laid the ground for the really remarkable, not only music, but also oral history collections that are in the Library of Congress that are still being added to all the time. So, but before that, actually, one thing that's always interested me a lot um, is um, it really was the commercial recording industry and even the furniture industry that captured early American folk and popular music as soon as almost as soon as there were recording de mechanical recording devices people were recording their local musical traditions but in the teens and the 20s I guess with the advent of shellac you know 78 I guess you probably know more about this than I do or I've forgotten but you know with platters as opposed to cylinders mm. um the companies that made that made these machines, these recording machines, realized that they probably could sell them to people cheaply for use in their home. But the way to sell them cheaply was to actually invite people into showrooms and have recording sessions. And this is the reason that we not only have recordings by the Carter family, and their predecessors, but it's also the reason that we have what used to be called race records for blues and early jazz. And it's also the reason that we have uh, pretty amazing archives of Eastern European folk music in the United States. People would just, guys that had furniture stores would open up and say, come on in, come see our recording machines, make a record. It'll be really fun. You can take the record home um and play it for your friends and in places where people had a little discretionary income these this really took off not everywhere uh so there was recording before there was almost before there was radio broadcasting of this music right right <laughs> anyway um yeah so the library of congress um before there were the before there were recording machines for field recording. And if you read about what Lomax was doing with field recording, um, he was, you know, he was carrying around a machine the size of a small bed and having to like unload it and set it up. It was very ungainly and the cylinders or the records were expensive and delicate. Um, people just took notes. 
Right. They sometimes recorded the tunes and they sometimes didn't. And there's an odd disjunction between the tune and the song in for many, many decades because people didn't have a, most people were not trained in writing down music. Well, <laughs> so. what, I'm, what I was thinking about when I mentioned the Library of Congress was your work on Ben Botkins. Mm-hmm. Who may be unfamiliar to listeners who are not steeped in US right. cultural history and the remarkable work you've done in turning his FBI files from things you frankly describe as dull horrible <laughs> into remarkable statements of cultural history once you endow them with the bigger picture of the fascism of the FBI, let's call mm-hmm. it, or what well, mm-hmm. Let's call it that, or I'll call it that, but also his contribution. And that's mm-hmm. partly to the Library of Congress and how they couldn't get at him directly, could they, Prof? Because he was not actually a government employee. Um, they couldn't get at him directly, but they made his life pretty miserable. He taught at the University of Oklahoma, which was a very, very right-wing state. I mean, it was not always a right-wing state, as I show in that article. It had a remarkably radical populist movement, the Green Corn Movement. Um, And, you know, Roxanne Dunbar, she's kind of comes out of that movement in her family history. Uh, But during the 1940s and 50s, there was incredible repression in Oklahoma City. And... Uh, Botkin may just have kind of been hanging around with the wrong group of writers project people. And so they, they made it pretty clear that he could go back to Washington, I think, and work at the Library of Congress, but he was probably going to be dragged before a committee if he went back to his job in Oklahoma. Job in Oklahoma. But he but his salary was paid for by a foundation once he was at the Library of Congress, right? So that gave him yeah. a certain protection maybe yes a certain protection you know it was so interesting when I published that article it's very nice of you to be complimentary about it because folklorists don't really like to talk about politics so that was met with a resounding silence when I published it (laughs) so no I mean I got some nice notes but they were not from folklorists but um, his family wrote to me and said, oh. now we understand why our father was always so worried about talking about politics. Our father was a very frightened man when we knew him. Oh. Isn't that sad? There's a, there are a couple of pictures, at least one picture in the article of him with the family. Mm-hmm. I think uh, so, But yeah. I think that maybe the daughters provided you with, or daughter and son, I forget. But yeah. it's very moving. The whole article is terribly moving, I have to say. Thank you. you, Probably the second nice thing anyone has ever said about it. Well, uh, it's wonderfully written like all your work, but it's also very, very moving because it's not the sort of big-ticket item McCarthyite story. It is about, in a way, a very ordinary man doing extraordinary things who suffered through this ridiculous guilt by association. He knew radical writers and poets and singers and filmmakers and dramaturgs. And, you know, 
as you point out in the article, the Communist Party wasn't even illegal at the time, and it's not clear that he was even a member of it or even interested in it. But nevertheless, Hoover and his sick acolytes went after him. I don't think he was. I just think that he wanted to vote for Wallace, which was also not illegal. Well, the last presidential candidate worth voting for, Susan, I would say. I think you could say I think you could say that I think, you know, that's kind of um, well, if I could talk about myself a little bit more for a minute, I I think that's kind of emblematic of my of my work. It's the kind of thing that I like to do. If you asked me to describe myself as a as a scholar, I would say, well, I'm an archive rat. I really like (laughs) I really like old documents. I like to be in an archive. If I'm covered with dust and exhausted and my eyes are strained, I'm totally happy. So I had just thought at one point I had thought, well, I I think I'm going to order some folklorists FBI files and see what they look like. See how many of them have FBI files. Not very many did. And I got onto this because of the work of a really great anthropologist named David Price. I don't know. Oh, yeah. His, well, you recite his work. His work on the anthropology and the FBI and the CIA is absolutely incredible. And communications. I mean, a, a myriad of these ridiculous disciplines. Right. He's off the charts. Ridiculous and, you know, in their he, conduct. I mean, really. Yeah. His yeah. So, David, yeah. So I don't know him personally, but no, um, no. he... Um, he had an article somewhere about the harassment of, get this, the harassment of Franz Boas. Franz Which Boas. Also mentioned in the article. Yeah, quite. The most innocent of figures in all of this, really. I mean, whatever. Really. Yeah. Really. But also the father of so many anthropologists. I'm sorry to use that word, but anthropologists talk in terms of their genealogy. Yeah, yeah. And, an awful lot of people, you know, would say so-and-so is descended from Boaz, meaning in a scholarly way. Um, not only Boaz, but his students. If 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 one of his students was gay, or if one of his students showed any sort of a um, sympathy towards African-Americans or Africans, like Melville Herskovitz, I mean, they were, they would just surveil these people. Yeah, yeah. So that was, so I got onto that through, through Price. And um, I thought, hmm, I wonder, you know, I had always figured that probably some of my teachers, and I won't say who, but some of my teachers, I figured probably did work for the FBI or the CIA. Right. Right. Um, And so I was interested in that, too. I was never able to turn anything up. But um, just this sort of low-level grinding pressure of the sense that you're that that whatever it is you're interested in it's probably suspicious you know the effect that that has on people now someone like herskovitz didn't didn't pay any attention to it he just went on wrote his amazingly influential work yes but other people were <laughs> discouraged and botkin suffered i think he suffered well, speaking of what can discourage people, you have one of the racier titles of a book by a distinguished scholar that I know. Oh, <laughs> um, Dirty Jokes and Body Songs. That that wasn't the title that I want. You know what it's like. They don't usually let you have the title that you want. <laughs> but it's a good title, even if it wasn't your first choice. 
So that's a pretty recent book, and it's a remarkable one. And again, it's going back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary. Right, to think that. about the collection of stories and music knowledge. Mm -hmm. Could you take us through that book a bit, please? Well, it's a it's a long book. Um, you you will say I can't believe I read the whole thing. Um, it's a it's a biography of a man who was Gershon Legman, who was the son of Romanian Hungarian working class immigrants. Never had a college degree flunked out of his first year at University of Michigan and um, decided that he was interested in obscenity. And he was interested in obscenity because probably because he was very, very interested in sex, but he was also interested and felt very deeply um, the repression of sex. And he had a, he was brought up Orthodox and he had um, a, a terrible time, he tells us in some of his memoirs, with um, the incredibly um, erotic and racy poetry that's in the Psalms being sung at the Shabbat services that he had to go to, No, no, had no choice about this right. uh, when he was a boy, and then coming home to his father, you know, not even allowing... Uh, a lady's romance in the house because it might suggest something improper. Um, he really had um, a very prudish and repressive immigrant upbringing. So no, no books that had things like his masculine hardness presented itself. Only the Bible. And, <laughs> and no bodice rippers. At all. No, the, but he was amazed at how much of a bodice ripper, you know, the Old Testament is, which oh. I had the same experience when I was a kid. I, I was, that was one of my big things was to read the Bible at night under the covers to <laughs> read the good parts. And, and if you haven't read it carefully, there's a lot of good parts. I know it's got some racy material. I mean. And uh, violence too. Well, and a, an awful God. Uh, really, yeah. I mean, the one good thing you could say about Christianity, if you really wanted to, was that it did have more, it did have some mercy. <laughs> some. No, he he never got past, um, he never got past the story of it, of Abraham and Isaac. Right. Okay. He just never got, he never got past the fact that this father was willing to sacrifice his son because God told him to. Well, he, and, and I guess, that one, I mean, to be biographical for a moment, and you know this story better than I do, this is a, a, a man who is pretty uxorious, but there's all this rumor about being gay, secretly gay, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's very hard to it's very hard to resolve that. I think like a lot of people, he probably had homosexual experiences and was horrified by them. Right. And so so made himself ultra, ultra, ultra interested in women. Right, right, right. And I guess that's and, not an uncommon story, is it? You know, sadly. No, I don't think it's an uncommon story. I think I think it was a deeply, deeply suppressed story in the years that he was growing up. Right. I mean I mean, 
anyway, but to, but to, so at, at any rate, um, he began as a young kid to collect stories, jokes, songs, rhymes, words, uh, anything that, anything that could be considered obscene, mm. um, mostly to do with sex. I mean, there are other things that are considered obscene, but mostly to do with sex. And when he got out of high school and flunked out of college, he decided that um, he would be this kind of literary sex researcher. But then he actually fell in with actual sex researchers. Yes, He, yes. he fell in with um, Dr. Dickinson and Dr. Kinsey, who were the founders of sex research in the United States. Um, and, you know, kind of, bumped along. He had this very bumpy career. He kept getting fired from jobs and almost arrested and chased out of the United States by the post office. And he, the first part of his life was very kind of vividly exciting in New York City. Some of the best descriptions of depression, New York City, I've read in a kind of first person memoir. And, um, he ended up spending the second half of his life more or less in a very rustic building with not for a long time, no electricity, no running water, just writing. And, <laughs> and publishing books, publishing huge, massive books of sexual folklore. And did you find, I mean, this is a sort of Aristotelian question, I guess yourself becoming a bit turned off by reading this incredible collection of sexualized material. Yeah. What uh -huh. I mean, a bit, I mean, yeah. sort of blasé, bored, not, I mean, finding it hard to take it all in, in what was perhaps meant to be its original iterations. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, he amassed this stuff and as a mass, it is often uh, just sort of like more more of the same. Now, it's interesting because to do this this work, I spent a lot of time in the Kinsey Archive and Library at Indiana uh, University in Indiana, right? Right. <laughs> right. And so this is when I was then teaching at um, University of Illinois, Champaign Urbana which is really pretty quick, you know, three or four hour drive Yes. over. And so I would go over, um, you know, stay for a couple of days at a time, work in this archive and then maybe go back the next week or maybe the next week, depending on what my schedule was like. The Kinsey is a place, it's a lot like Legman's archive. Um, people put stuff there that they loved very tenderly whether it was print erotica, objects, sex toys, sculptures, films, mm -hmm. diaries, because they knew it would be destroyed if they left it anywhere else. So if you read this book by Justin Spring, The Secret Professor, I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, I don't it's, know. It's an interesting book about one of Kinsey's main informants, whose name I can't remember just now. Um, but, um, it's a, it's a repository for things that people cherished and were terribly afraid that other people wanted to destroy. 
if you spend time in there, you sort of begin to get a feeling for what Legman was about because there's so much variety of art, sculpture, photography that just, you know, cannot or could not until pretty recently be seen, shown, shared. You know, everything from Japanese pillow books to B-movies. And um, of course, you know, the Indiana legislature, you know, every couple of years get, <laughs> gets all geared up to take this repository of filth down. Uh, so far, I was going to ask you whether on your on your route from Champaign to Indiana, you were listening to Christian radio in the car. I would hope. No, so. I never listened to Christian radio. I'm very disappointed never. in you, Prof. Uh, it's you know, there's I'm I'm very very open culturally that I cannot take. <laughs> right, you have your limits. I do. Um, at any rate, so you know, I mean, I guess the the point of this book about Legman was to try to write a description of, a, write a serious evaluation and a serious criticism of a person whose work was basically unassimilable. Mm. And what, what made him, yeah. what made him unassimilable? Was it him or is it us? Yeah, okay. And and at, and along the way to see you know what is what what do what does the way he worked the way he thought about folklore his method his I don't know his interpretations what do, what do they tell us about folklore as a field more generally and what they tell us is I think that um, it's it's pretty um, dictated by um, NPR style popular opinion or public opinion. It's very tame. Prof, when I lived in L.A., I was NPR's go-to guy for commentary on Queen Elizabeth's corgis. Oh, God. Just in case you think you're not talking to a person of consequence. <laughs> do you know, well, this is off topic, but do you, you know those things have to be groomed three or four times a year. They're very hairy. You mean NPR or the dogs? Well, NPR could use it. The dogs absolutely demand it. So um, is there something lost, Prof, in the fact that the people you're talking, you've been talking about, the men you've been describing, were pretty autodidactic? Is there something lost? It's not, not possible sure to be that much of an autodidact today, I think, in the United States and get that kind of prominence? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I had a reader for this manuscript who thought that I was really underestimating Legman's prominence and importance. And he said, you're really underestimating how important he was, how much folklorists accepted him and liked him. And I said, you're, you've got to be kidding. I mean, they wouldn't even answer his letters. They liked him? No, they didn't like him. He had terrible trouble getting his books published. This is partly because of the topic, but also he just barely squeaked through. I mean, this the years when he was publishing, you could still have a bachelor's degree maybe and some expertise and be a college professor. You could. Right. You know, if, if you'd made your way 
at a literary magazine, say, you know, or I, you know, it, now I think it's very, very hard. I mean, um, I think there's something lost in that you have to have a writing degree to be a writer. I mean, I think it's very sad. <laughs> not that everybody can be a writer. I mean, people can write well. That's maybe not the same as being a writer. But um, I, you know, how how do how do you how do you become the editor of a feisty little New York magazine that's influential? Well. A while back, it was, you know, sharp elbows and scrounging for some money and being male, probably. And now it really is. I don't know. I think you have to be it's almost an inherited job. It's a, almost a genealogical question, don't you think? I do. But, Prof, I want to take us back in terms of your work, if I may, and just thinking about time and the rich load of questions you've stimulated for me in the last little while. I want to take us back to a seemingly more innocent time in your work, before you discovered bawdiness, before you discovered naughtiness. Okay. You wrote about cute orcas and adorable, little... adorable sea creatures liberated to educate the people of Southern California. <laughs> you mean captured to educate them? Enslaved. So spectacular yeah. nature, your your book, your wonderful book about SeaWorld. Um, could you, if, if we can move away for a moment from these other interesting topics, throw us back into SeaWorld because you say in the book, before you started working on this, you'd been there once and it had left you feeling sick, physically ill, right? <laughs> yeah, I went, I went there. I was, the first time I was there, I was there with a friend and they said, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I, that was sort of how I felt. Yeah. Um, well, so I was very interested in the, in, at that point, And I still remain very interested in public space. And I realized that in SeaWorld, I was living near because I was living in San Diego an enormous corporation that was claiming that it was creating a public space, a public good. It really advertised itself that way. It promoted itself through the school systems that way. It gave discount tickets to people from poor school districts that way. And it kind of um, monopolized the image of wildness and nature in San Diego, the San Diego part of Southern California. And I thought, well, how, how can this be? I'd been studying parades and demonstrations and riots and carnivals, which can seem and still sometimes do seem like much more unruly, uncontrolled, uncorporatized forms of public activity and what does it what does it mean that this enormous corporation which in the beginning was Harcourt Brace Jovanovich then became Anheuser-Busch the brewer and after that became BlackRock the real estate corporation <laughs> multinational what are these people doing claiming they're constructing a public space and they actually were doing it on city-owned property so there was actually 
a real claim to be made there. They had a long-term lease. From books to beer to bullshit. Books to beer to homelessness, I guess. But I'm trying anyway. to be illiterative, but you haven't cut me a break. Whatever. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so so I was studying these animals and the, the way they were presented and the way they were trained. And I did interviews. Like, as I said, I'm sort of a, a archive rat and I archived around among the staff and did a lot of interviews. Mm. And that was probably the most interesting part for me was interviewing the trainers about how they learned their jobs and what they thought they were doing. And um, for a long time, Toby, I was the go-to person in Southern California for NPR on whales, but then I left. So we've got animal envy. We've got animal rivalry here. (laughs) Animal rivalry. But I left, and I left that topic behind because by the time I was done with it, I was just thoroughly sick of it. And as I was getting ready to think about doing this conversation with you, I realized, you know, I need to tell Toby that I got it wrong. You know, I mean, I'm glad you like the book, but I really got it wrong for an interesting reason. I neglected the agency of the animals because what happened after I stopped writing about SeaWorld was that they began killing their trainers. I am not kidding you. And they had been injuring and killing people before that, but up to up to the point that a woman was dragged down and kind of gnawed on and drowned at the bottom of a pool, I think it was in Florida. Um, they had anybody who was injured or had had a bad interaction was sewn up in a non-disclosure agreement very tightly by Anheuser Busch. No reporting, no court documents, no lawsuits I could look at, nothing. Nobody would talk about it. And I and so I underestimated these incidents. And what happened with this woman uh, was that she was killed in front of an audience. And it wasn't possible to keep it sewed up anymore. The book was over, the book was done, it had already been published, but I thought suddenly this corporation had a huge problem on on its hands. It had a huge PR problem, it had a huge animal rights problem, and it had a big problem with OSHA, a huge problem with OSHA. And I don't think they've solved their problem with OSHA. Occupational Safety and Health Administration of the Department of Labor, right? It's labor, I think. So um, that's a, that's a, um, if I had it to do over again, or if I was talking to a student who wanted to do something like that, I would say, if, if, if your inner voice says, there's a story here that I can't get at, it seems important, but I can't get at it. I can't get at it. Listen to that. (laughs) especially if you're researching a very closed-mouthed corporation. But one of the things that you explain in the book is the extraordinary difficulty of getting access. And yeah. how you had to be terribly dogged. Yeah, that's true. I, 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 I even fell into depression thinking that, no, minor depression, thinking that I was never going to get in to talk to the executives. 
Um, I had a, I, I had a prestigious grant that didn't make any difference to the people at SeaWorld. I was from UCSD. That didn't make any difference. I just was dogged. And when I showed up, I made sure to look really dowdy. Can you tell us, okay, dowdy female prof, what are we wearing? Sensible shoes? Sensible shoes, the wrong color nylons, calf length rayon dress in a bad print, mm. short, boring hair, no makeup. Okay, so I'm looking for the words I'm going to use because I write little descriptions of the discussions. Should I say dowdy ethnography? How, what would be the best? <laughs> Ethno dowdy ethnography? Yeah, I think it's probably a new expression. Dowdy dogged ethnography. Okay, I like that. And dowdy dogged ethnography. Because there is always this issue for women with about self-presentation. That yeah. is just one of these gender differences that thus far is ineradicable, right? Yeah. Well, I was in... I was in early middle age, but I looked younger than I was, and um, I was tired. I had a couple of little kids, so I looked tired, and I just figured um, non-threatening, let them write you off as this that college professor, and that's what, that's what they did. Got it. Got it. And yeah. by the way, I'm, I'm worried that the children never got an outing to see one. My children? Yes. No, they never did. They never did. They for, ideological. for ideological. Well, I was, you know, but to be really frank about it, um, I did so much work there that I couldn't stand to take them there recreationally. It just was sure. horrible. Um, but and they they were allowed for ideological reasons one trip to Disneyland once, one day. Well. <laughs> We in the cultural left are just so fantastic, aren't we? Well, I Prof, know, we're just so mean I, and censorious. And... I've got a couple of questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add or subtract anything from what we've discussed. The first sure. thing is you gave me a little teaser before we started recording about what is jazzing you now, what you're thinking about working on now. Mm -hmm. Could you perhaps share some of that with us? You know, I... <laughs> Like a lot of women my age, I'm doing elder care now. So big ethnographic problem pr projects are not on the front burner. Um, I really love, I'm living in New Mexico now. Where I'm speaking to you from Santa Fe. And the mishmash here of tourism overlaid by centuries-long bitter cultural conflict, just fascinating. And people have written a, a lot about it. And it is, not, it is not an exhausted subject. One of the things that I, I mean, there is genuine multiculturalism in New Mexico, but it isn't what tourism means when it says multiculturalism. So there is genuine multi-multilingualism. Um, multi lots of people who are 
Spanish speakers who have been Spanish speakers for generations, yep. lots of people just arriving from Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, if they can. <laughs> lots of lots of rich Anglos, poor Anglos, African Americans, Sikhs. I mean, New Mexico, New Mexico has it, and lots of contestation over. Who gets to say what the past meant? And uh, that's just one of my, you know, lifelong favorite topics. Now, one of the things that this means is that if you go to a parade or a rally or a demonstration, it can actually be dangerous, like physically dangerous, because it's really felt. And it's an open carry state. So you think non-US people open carry means you know, under the ridiculous terms of the so-called law of the Second Amendment, depending on different states' interpretations of that amendment or legislation attenuated to it. Open carry, right to... walk around with a goddamn gun under your arm. Yeah, it's the right to menace. Beautifully put, yeah. It's the right, it's the right to menace in public. Um, but... So, so we have we have things like um, uh, a, an an obelisk dedicated to the Union soldiers who fought off the Confederate soldiers about twelve miles away in the furthest south, furthest west battle of the Civil War, but who also massively suppressed the Plains Indians up in Colorado. And it's a it's an obelisk. It's about a hundred and sixty. It's about a hundred and hundred and forty years old. It was finally pulled over. I mean, pulled over with a truck and a and a rope by um, a group called the Red Nation after being hated and desecrated for many years. And that was about four years ago. And the the city cannot find a process of reconciliation that um, can decide what to do with this obelisk. I mean, it's a very hot, if you, you know, if, if you want to use that sort of hot, spicy, but also hot physically kind mm -hmm. of topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if you have a statue of a conquistador in your town, that statue has probably been taken apart by blowtorches. Right, right. And, I mean, it happens frequently, and people get hurt, and people even get, you know, badly hurt. But, and so, I, I'm, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound awful. What I mean to say is it's really live. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so that, that interests me a lot, a lot. And I live on the path that, I mean, people, you you can see people wearing T-shirts, Native Americans wearing T-shirts that say 1680 on them, which is the date that the Pueblo Indians drove the Spanish back to Mexico City and kept them there for 12 years. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm on, I live on the path that those driven out Spaniards had to take to go back. Literally. Are path. you going to teach us about this, Prof? I 
pretty sure that um I'm pretty sure that for right now I'm 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 not going to be teaching about it. It's partly because there are other scholars in New Mexico who know a lot more about it than I do and deserve their say and deserve their turn. You know, they don't need me going down to UNM to try to elbow them out of the way. <laughs> but um you know, it, it it might be possible. It's certainly underwritten about. It may not be undertaught about. So I don't know. I don't know, Toby. Well, I hope you will. And my last question, Prof, and as I say, then I want to hand it to you to learn some more from you, is this. How does one study folklore? Um, how does one study folklore? So... Someone once asked a famous historian, it might have been Christopher Hill, what their method was. And if it was Hill, he said, I read a lot. I talk to interesting people. I listen. <laughs> I think. So you you find your materials and obviously you, or your process, and you obviously orient yourself by the theory that you've read that seems congenial to you or that seems useful to you. And then you just watch and look a lot. Um, it, it, it Folklorists tend to, in their ethnographic practice, want to have lots of examples. They, they want to see how much similarity and difference there is between iterations of things. And they find meaning in those subtle iteration subtle differences in iteration well you're smiling <coughs> i was thinking about subtlety and that's what made me smile mm -hmm. because there's something subtle yet searing in your work that I always see. And for me, it's a blend of the archival, the ethnographic, and the political economic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was trying to get you to say when I asked you, how do you do folklore? Oh, I see. <laughs> Sorry, I see. manipulative yeah. moment 100. Yeah. Well, I, um, yeah, I mean, my my personal is a, is a blend of the political, economic, and the ethnographic and the archival. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not happy applying a big truckload of theory to one example and then extruding a conclusion. Uh, to me, that's not very good work. Although it some it works for some people very well. Um. I don't know. I think, I don't know. I just, it just, it's John Swed just popped into my head. I think, you know, John Swed, who is just a lovely, lovely person, um, is one of the people that um, I think is laying a groundwork for a lot of people to do more work. He's reconstructing the worlds that people like Sun Ra and Billie Holiday and John Coltrane worked in, uh, Miles Davis, I mean, I'm sorry, Miles Davis. And, uh, you know, he's showing us 
the weird, weird places that this man, Harry Smith, came out of. Uh, and he, I mean, you know, we used to argue in graduate school a lot about this word context, which, you know, is now starts to seem like sort of a, I don't know, just an old word. But I mean, John Swed's work is like context, you know, writ large, like context, like the Hollywood sign. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I guess, you know, the only thing I wonder is I wonder in this. I just wonder in the world of what I started to wonder as I was drawing my teaching career to a close was in the world of fast results and productivity what happens to archival research and ethnographic research. They both take huge amounts of time. And I used to get letters regularly from a provost who would tell me I was unproductive because she was a chemist and she thought, you know, three or four papers a year. And after 10 years, a textbook, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, I, I, I guess if I, if I was going to put my energy into something academic, it would be making sure that people had space and time to do this deep research where surprising, unexpected things come up and you suddenly find that, you know, you've neglected the agency of the orcas and you better think about that. <laughs> Beautifully put, Prof. Susan, thank you so much. I always learn a huge amount from you, whether it's reading or chatting. Is there anything you'd like to add to what we've already discussed? No, I think, um, I guess, you know, my thought, I've been thinking a lot lately about silence. And um, you wouldn't know it because we've been very, very chatty here. <laughs> keeping the conversation going has not been a problem. Uh, but I, I do think it's very interesting that we live uh, in a world of silences. And I was very moved as a young woman by a book called Silences by Tilly Olson. Oh, yes. A, right, yeah, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Poet and, and novelist from the 30s. Um, there are some very, very large silences that we're living within our everyday life right now. And I just want to think about those. I think, why are there subjects that when we bring them up, everyone becomes very silent? That's, there's, that's got to be way of there's got to be a way of shutting guys up. There has to be something. <laughs> well, when I read the New York Times, I, there are some guys that I wish would shut up. But yeah. anyway, yeah. Well, well Toby, uh, it's been lovely. It's been wonderful chatting to you. Uh, thank you so much, Susan. Okay. Okay, and stay out of those theme parks with your young children. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.